0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Renewable power is fundamental to the energy transition. However, it faces a number of challenges. Intermittency, distance from populations in some circumstances, and spilled energy where so much energy is made that power prices go negative and the renewables facilities shut off. How can the industry tackle these so more and more renewables gets onto the grid? Our guest John Belazer is working on providing a solution for just these challenges, notably computing. John is the founder of Saluna computing, a publicly listed company on the NASDAQ and has been an entrepreneur for 20 years and involved in renewable energy and computing for the last five. As always, please do leave us a positive review on the platform you're listening on. It really supports the show, and I hope you enjoy this episode. John, thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Excellent. Uh, So I'm looking forward to this discussion. We're essentially talking about the, the fundamental challenges that renewable energy faces today and in that discussion, hopefully highlighting some solutions and opportunities that means that it can scale and expand to meet the needs of, of energy transition. So let's start, I guess, on the challenges. There's, there's a myriad challenges that the solar and wind that we're talking about, I guess, in particular. Hmm. I know the, the first one that's essentially key well let's talk intermittency first because that will build up i think from to, to the others but can you just give us an idea of what the what intermittency means and the challenges it poses
1: absolutely the simplest way to explain what intermittency is is to explain what the grid is without it the grid was designed to really be a synchronous system you have generation production of power. And you have uh, demand or load, which is the consumption of that power. All grid systems are designed to have transmission that moves power from that production point to the load in a synchronous fashion, meaning there's exactly a match between those two. And so when you look at the systems that make that happen, you have power plants that are thermally powered or gas powered, and they can be dispatched by the grid to fire on very quickly and deliver energy when it is needed and just at the exact amount that's needed. And that's worked great for a long time now. And in the last few years, as the grid has been transitioning to introducing power plants that are solar, wind, hydro, sustainable plants that are no longer fossil fuel based, the thing that the grid lost was this dispatchability. They can't really control, per se, when and how much energy will be produced by those facilities. They are really controlled by Mother Nature now. Mother Nature dispatches the wind, the sun, the rain to power the power plants and deliver power to the grid. And so the grid can no longer dispatch them. Sometimes they're on, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're generating more power than the grid needs now. And so it creates this intermittent experience for the grid as it relates to the power plant. That's one of the biggest challenges with introducing more and more of this on the grid. And as you replace fossil fuel plants with more green plants, you're definitely getting greener electrons, but you're introducing all sorts of new technical challenges and that is this intermittency where you may have more or less power than is needed hmm
0: thank you for that and and that we're seeing that challenge you know in in the developed in developed world in particular at the moment as more sort of base load hydrocarbons have come off line you'll you'll you know and there's a reliance on more increasing reliance on renewables you know and when that when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine you can have these huge spikes in 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 prices with europe is seeing In the last year the flip side of intermittency though is what you call spilled energy which is also a real problem for the for the investors and for the operators of of renewable um, facilities that's
1: that's correct so now think about the owners of the power plants most grid systems are sort of a market system there's a incentive to generate power of a certain type the power plant owners Find a site to set up a big utility scale solar plant or a wind plant. They build those out, they connect them into the grid system, and then they use market signals or price signals to determine when to dispatch their power down. And what happens is you have this interesting phenomenon where everyone who is building a renewable energy plant tries to find the most optimal place to put that power plant. And Oftentimes, they end up in the same place. I call it the sort of McDonald's and Burger King problem. Everybody's trying to find the best location to to sell their, their their food. They end up one or two blocks away from each other. So you get lots and lots of wind plants, solar plants being built in the same parts of different grid systems. Texas, for example, in the western part of the country, you'll find lots of wind farms. They all try to Send their power to the grid at the same time or as much of it as possible. And what happens is because of this intermittency and the synchronization problem, the grid can't take all of that power. In fact, it becomes congested because the transmission lines at that particular point aren't big enough to carry all the energy that's being produced and deliver enough of it to match the demand. Or sometimes there's too much of it, it just can't send all of that power because there's not enough demand. So as a result, energy gets spilled. It gets turned off. A lot of the power plant is signaled by the grid with negative prices to turn off their power plants. And so that is energy that has not been monetized. It's essentially wasted. And that, that poses a
0: challenge for obviously the economics of the plant as well. So let's just put a pin in that for a second, because there's a couple of more sort of challenges as well. and. One you alluded to there is the grid itself, right, and the location of where the ideal, the optimal location for these renewable uh, generation facilities yeah. often is well away from populations. You, you know, you exactly. talk about Texas there. You know, it's the, renew- the generations in the West, but all the people live in the bottom sort of bottom right. right-hand corner.
1: That's right. And you've got you've to get the power from A to B, and there just may not be sufficient transmission to do that. And so not all the power plants are gonna get all of their energy in and through the grid to their off takers or to the population centers that might be using the energy. And so the grid needs to signal them to to, to back down. Now what that does to the power plant is it puts tremendous amount of financial pressure on that project because it was designed and modeled and financed on the assumption that when it produced energy it would be able to sell all of that energy on a continuous basis for 25, 30 years. And when it's unable to do that, it causes all sorts of financial pressures. They're not able to meet their debt obligations. They're not able to return capital with the target return that they've promised to investors. They need the cash flow to finance the operations of the facility and maintenance of it, et cetera. It's it a lot of financial pressure because the percentage of wasted energy is driving down the financial performance of that project. And each one of these things is a company that has a very specific objective tied to it. Yeah. And then there's this broader challenge because one, one
0: potential solution to this, of course, is that you bring the renewable energy closer to the consumer. In fact, you put it in their backyard, right? With distributed generation. Right. But that comes up against a, a hundred years worth of regulation and policy that is focused on that grid as you described it right at the start there and there's all sorts of challenges whether you know whether it's everything must be rooted through the local power provider monopolies just so there's a slew of regulations out there that is also that the renewables energy is having to work with that wasn't really designed for them can you spend some time talking about that backdrop because that's in some ways key for the long-term future of of how we deploy and consume power from renewable sources.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there are a number of regulations that both incentivize the production and development of renewable energy facilities. So, the the, the grid scale ones that I've been talking about, if if they're wind plant, they have in the U.S. something called a production tax credit, which essentially helps to fund the power plant by giving them a relief on taxes on the profits generated by the power plant the same is true for solar plants there's a investment tax credit that goes with that and i'm not sure about hydro but they all have incentives to add more and more and bring investment dollars into these projects but you have to be able to generate the energy and produce it and sell it to your downstream party And so if you can't get it onto the grid and through the transmission system, that's going to be a challenge. The other aspect of regulation is just re-architecting the grid to essentially get back to where we are today, or catch up with is probably the better term, catch up with where we are today in terms of technology and the way power can get to the grid. Your comment about distributed generation, the grid never contemplated the fact that the consumers of the energy would also be producers of the energy (laughs) in a distributed fashion. And there are no laws in some places that really support that happening where you can build a rooftop system, you send energy to the grid and get paid for it, or net that. That's growing in a lot of places and it's becoming more and more prevalent, but it's not at the scale that would support giving the grid the needs that it has for that green energy and in a way that that, that's really workable for it there are also challenges with getting some of these solutions on the grid again putting batteries and transmission and other solutions like ours Mm. on the grid can be a challenge because depending on where you are and depending on where this problem exists there may be laws preventing that from happening and the reason these laws exist is because Energy, to some extent, is a regulated process, and it became deregulated many years ago. In the process of that deregulation, there were new laws created to protect the industry, et cetera. And the grid systems need a way to finance the investment in all the infrastructure that it needs to make to deliver energy to consumers. And anything that may be circumventing the collection of revenues for that, or not allowing them to spread that cost over a a certain number of customers or growth plans can materially affect the profitability of the grid operators. And so there tends to be a general reluctance, political pressure, whatever you may call it, to work against these, these technical innovations because the system is so constrained by these legacy laws and a lot
0: of this is actually it's quite complex regulation and it's not it necessarily is, yeah. something that's, that's easy for, whether it's local, local magistrate jurisdictions or, or city, state, country, right. you know, wherever we are in the world, yeah. you know, in these are quite complex things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also, as you say, like the whole focus is on creating, create, maintaining that grid stability because when that goes down, then you're in a whole new world of problems, right? So there are valid reasons why these things are in place. Okay. So, the when we, we we've talked about intermittency and you've mentioned batteries because that is yep. very much seen by the public and in general batteries are going to solve intermittency. In fact, you know, I was just listening today an article on a on a two hundred megawatt facility out in Oregon where they've applied batteries. You know, utilities incorporated batteries into that setup, and what was interesting was whilst the facility could power. Fifteen thousand homes, or whatever it was, Mm -hmm. the batteries could only store enough um, energy for four hours, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, where are we at at the moment with batteries solving for intermittency, and what are the challenges there?
1: So, when I describe to people what we do, and I'm sure we'll get to the elevator pitch of around Saluna's solution, but what I'm saying is, there's—I typically tell them there's this wasted energy problem, and we solve it by building data centers that absorb that, that, that wasted energy. And they say, wow, that's fascinating, but can't you store it? And I say, yes, actually the concept of batteries do exist. Utility scale batteries are being developed, but they, they, they're not yet scalable enough to become ubiquitous, ubiquitous components of the grid. The cost return profile of the technology is not there yet. Although it's, It is enjoying the benefits over time from Wright's law as we we start to use more and more batteries with more electric vehicles out there. Uh, Certainly the cost of lithium ion batteries are going to come down a lot, and that way may address the issue. But from an architectural perspective and technology perspective, you really can't store that much energy for very long because the energy does dissipate. There's thermal and fire issues with some of this technology still yet, and the scale is not there yet for it to be a real core solution to the problem, but it will, it will be part of the solution. You will see batteries on the grid. You do see them today. There are lots of new companies being formed. There are new companies creating long duration versions of these batteries that use different technology. They're not yet at the scale of financeability where they can be deployed on the grid The other question I get is, well, why can't you just move the energy if it's being produced in California or one part of Texas and it's not needed there? Why can't you just move it to the other part? And so transmission is is another proposed solution to the wasted energy problem. And it's always a great question. But when you really think about how long it takes to uh, or understand how long it takes to build a transmission line that must pass potentially across state lines, over private land where the landowner is going to ask you, am I going to get any of that energy? (laughs) No, it's going to Atlanta, sir or ma'am, and they're not going to be seeing any of that. There's a big reluctance to put these huge electromechanical systems and all sorts of stuff on their land that may or may not be good for their health. It just takes a very long time to get that to happen. But computing, on the other hand, is... Available now. It's infinitely scalable. The demand for computing and data and analytics is growing at an exponential rate. And the technology, if designed the right way, can be placed there, much like a battery, with the power plant to absorb and convert that energy into a form that can be distributed around the world. That's a very powerful, almost lateral way to think about the problem, take an existing solution repurpose it to solve the problem. And the problem is you want to monetize all of the energy that gets produced by green energy so that there's more incentive to build more green, green energy and so that the grid can absorb more green energy. Unfortunately, batteries aren't enough to do that today. Mm.
0: And then we come to the the solution that you're providing at the moment, and essentially you've got data centers that consume an enormous amount of mm-hmm. energy, and it's locating those with renewable sources. I want to come on because the me- mm-hmm. mechanics of this a little bit, but this is what I found interesting. And yeah, so you to skip ahead in the story, basically, the the first things you're starting off with is essentially is is crypto right mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. is providing the the power that goes into the mining and support of these of the various blockchains right. so there's a little bit of a discussion around the philosophy of that right and right um, but I was fascinated to hear you you talk and we've spoken previously about this with it that actually mm-hmm. energy was critical to the because obviously the, the the gorilla in the room so to speak is is Bitcoin right and we hear a lot about the mining of Bitcoin and and how much energy that consumes. Is that, you know, it's using as much as a a Latin American country and is that good for the environment, etc. Right. But one of the things you spoke to there was how energy was fundamental in the design of Bitcoin and similar protocols as well. I'd love to get your take on that because I found that fascinating.
1: Absolutely, Paul. Yeah. What I'd like to say is that the energy consumption of Bitcoin and Bitcoin is the it is the gorilla in the room. It's the strongest brand in the space. You know, I even like to say that there's crypto and then there's Bitcoin <laughs> because it, it is the most mature and to some extent the most ubiquitous uh, platform in the space. But why does it use so much energy? That's always the question that people ask, and they ask it as if it's a bug, like what's wrong with the protocol that it uses uh, so much energy? And what I try to do is to educate them and help them to realize that it's not a bug at all. it's actually a feature. The energy consumption of Bitcoin is key to the entire protocol. And here's why. At the heart of the Bitcoin capital B protocol, to support the Bitcoin small b currency or asset or store value, whatever the latest term for this technology is these days, it has to do a lot of different things. Number one, it must create a way to manage the flow of transactions and recording of assets in a way such that trust is irrelevant. Doesn't matter if the participants, the peer-to-peer participants that are managing this central ledger in a decentralized fashion, trust each other or not. And the only way to do that is to, number one, make sure that everyone has a copy of that ledger. So there's this concept of data flowing between all the participants. Each participant is implementing the protocol the same way. So if I send Bitcoin to Paul, each participant is writing down in their ledger on one of the pages. So think of the page as the series of transactions that are happening. I send money to Paul. Paul sends money to Martha. That's all being written down. And eventually that page becomes full, and then you've got to start a, a second page and continue to write the transactions down. Each of those pages is a block. Those pages are all stacked together and, and placed inside of a folder. That's the, the blockchain, if you will, the chain of uh, of transactions. And they're placed in there in a very specific order, sequential, such that the most recent set of tra- transactions are at the top of the folder. So the question then arises, how do you protect that folder and each of the pages and every one of the transactions such that it's never tampered with and it's never, you know, gamed, if you will, such that if I say I sent Paul five Bitcoin, Paul can't change the ledger and say that, no, John sent me 50 Bitcoin, if you will. And that's accomplished by essentially a series of cryptographic algorithms and ways to convert the transactions into a common form. And think of it as stamping each page with a special number that essentially encodes everything on the page such that I know if you made even the smallest change to anything on that page. Then I take the information on the previous page and I combine them and produce that new number and I also stamp that with the page and I combine it all together so to incent participants to do that work that stamping and protecting and validating of the information on those ledgers and protecting them there's a part of the protocol called mining and what mining is doing is doing that stamping and doing that activity and is generating this special number that it has to stamp on those pages that seals it that process is a very compute intensive process just that if you had to do it by hand, it would take you you know the, the number of stars in the universe <laughs> to get there. And so computers are doing it and computers can do it very quickly. And then eventually it's a race to find the number. And once one of the participants finds the number, we all stamp, uh, actually we all validate the number. So 51% of us agree, John found the right number. We all stamp the number on the page. And then the network essentially rewards our work with Bitcoin, actually pays us in Bitcoin to perform that work. Now, if you just pause there, what I've showed you is a protocol, an asset, a security system that's protecting the the page and an incentive system to put resources to perform that security. So now let's say I want to attack the network. I actually want to go in there and change this ledger that is now 13 years old that grows every 10 minutes, and take half of the network and and rewrite it so it, it, it comes back to John. The way I have to do that is I have to go to every single page from the beginning of time, the beginning of the Bitcoin network, rewrite it because if I change any one thing in one page, it breaks the entire chain from there, you see? So I'd have to go in and rewrite it and re-stamp it. So that means I would have to perform the computing process multiple times again which requires me to expend computing resources and it requires me to to to, to uh, power those computing resources. Okay, so I would have to expend multiple amounts, you know, multiple times the amount of energy that it that it takes <laughs> to do just one page to change the network. And because that's true as we used to say, you know, computer science. You know,
0: it would cost you so much energy that you might as well not exactly. have in the first place, E-G- right? E-G, You know,
1: <laughs> essentially, the energy, the fact that you need energy means that the asset is secured by energy. You see, so it's 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 ingrained in the system that computing therefore uses energy and therefore you need to invest computing and energy power to support it. And so let's say I came up with a very powerful computer to attack the network. And the protocol is so elegantly designed that it could sense that I've added this much more powerful computer because the entire program is designed to only generate the Bitcoin every 10 mm. minutes. But if some reason the the, the the Bitcoin is now being generated in eight minutes or seven minutes, it's like, wait a second, technology has advanced to a point where there's more powerful computation capability it actually adjusts and makes the problem harder. So you have to expend more computing power, and it keeps doing that until it gets back to 10 minutes, you see? Mm. So this notion that the energy consumption just will just increase until it consumes all the energy on the planet is not true. It's actually elegantly designed to adjust up and down so that it always stays in 10 minutes. So now let me take a step back. You make exactly the perfect point, Paul. You have this system designed to create a digital form of money backed by energy, and it creates an economic incentive such that it's more lucrative for you to protect the network than to attack it, (laughs) and the energy consumption, the form of the energy consumption is technically irrelevant to the platform. It's just a protection mechanism. So, if you use the fact that you've got this asset that's growing over time, it's becoming more ubiquitous, sometimes it's worth more, sometimes it's worth less, but over time it's becoming more valuable and ingrained in our society. People want to trust it, right? Trust the protocol that makes trust irrelevant. Then, fundamentally, it has to have the right level of security. But what if you took that security system and attached it to a renewable or sustainable energy source, right? And you connect it to this wasted energy problem, now you've got something very fascinating, right? You've got a confluence between two major fast moving transitions, if you will, right? Where there's potentially a transition in the financial services industry, where there's a new asset class, and we're starting to see everyone describe Bitcoin that way. You also have a transition away from fossil fuels, where we want to put the pedal to the metal on that, right? And so if you take this growing, fast-growing technology that's growing at exponential rate, combine it with lots of capital coming in to construct infrastructure, you now have a marriage made in heaven. Because the crypto computing or security need can be a physical hedge to the wasted energy problem and allow more and more energy to be integrated to the grid. Let me just stop to see if you were following. That, that made sense to you, mm. <laughs> because I just think you with a lot there.
0: No, I'm with you. I bet, I bet people didn't think we were going to take a, a deep dive down the, the crypto thing, but I, I knew it works. I find it fascinating. The HC Insider Podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence, and advisory firm. Focus solely on the global energy and commodity sector, with six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It does. And I, and I get the sense of it. It does cascade a few questions for me. And, and obviously your business plan is of course to, is to move beyond just crypto miners into yes. data data centers for web services, et cetera, which is an all, altogether new magnitude of scale. Mm-hmm. I exactly. guess, I get yeah. the fundamental point, which is you're solving for this spilled energy problem. Yes. Um, so it's going to allow more money to flow from investors into renewables. Yes, and thereby grow the overall share of the market. How does it solve for intermittency? Because, and I want to weave in a, a comment here because there are in Texas where I'm based, right? There's there are tr- truck trains or, or groups of trucks driving around like like sort of birds, seasonally migrating between different regions, depending on wind and solar loads, hooking up their their crypto mining capabilities to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like your comment on that as well, because you know you're, you're doing a, a more permanent solution. But how do you solve for intermittency? Well, you, you the, the data center, the miners just can't. Can they just shut off when there is no wind?
1: Yeah. So I I had paused earlier because I was I was commenting about this interesting combination that can be achieved to solve the wasted energy problem. But what about the grid problem? What about the 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 fact that the grid because it was designed for this synchronous approach is fundamentally inflexible. So the only way to solve that, well, there are two ways you can solve that problem. One is to essentially blow up the grid (laughs) and just rebuild it from scratch where it's a new dynamic system and so forth. That's very unlikely because the grid is not just the, the physical side, right? It's all of those law frameworks we talked about. So what you wanna be able to do is retroactively add flexibility when you're adding these intermittent facilities. And when you double click on that problem, what you're really talking about is you want to add flexible load onto the system. Load that can sense that there's not sufficient energy to support all of the load and that load puts itself to sleep such that the other load that's more critical can use the energy that's available, or it can sense that there's too much energy and wake up and consume the energy that could be wasted on the network. Now, that tends to sort of point to a battery, but we were just talking earlier that batteries aren't at that level, and sometimes you end up potentially using the battery only once a year. Where well, you want something that's highly flexible and flexible at every different point of the grid where that flexibility is needed. So you want to place lots of these things around. Well, it turns out that if you zoom in on computing, there's different classes of computing. There's what's known as real-time computing. So that's the type of computing that supports your ability to, sh- to watch streaming movies or see the news on your, on your phone, talk to friends clear around the world using WhatsApp. That's all synchronous real-time communication and computing. It's how you do e-commerce, et cetera, on the web. Then there's non-real-time or batchable computing. It's the type of computing that is not time-sensitive. It's compute-intensive. So things like if I want to do a raw search across all the molecules that I have in my molecule base as a pharmaceutical to see if there's applications for those molecules to solve new ailments like COVID-19, for example, I've got to have a computer just do a, a raw search of that. I can pause that search. If for some reason the power went out and pick up that search where I left off, for example, another example would be where Paul just watched a movie on Netflix. I'd like to show Paul some examples of the next few movies he should watch. So there's a model of all the, the movies that you've watched and I'd like to use that model to predict what you might be interested in watching next. And then finally, there's an example of self-driving cars trying to figure out where they are in the road <laughs> and they're updating the model to do that so they get a picture of the road that they can use. These are all batchable processes that can be done at any given time If I want to transcode a movie so that it can be streamed, I can do that in the background. Those types of applications, the non-real-time ones, are very resilient to loss of computing availability, power, et cetera. So if I can place that flexible compute inside of a flexible facility next to a intermittent power plant, I now can bring flexible... Uh, flexible load and flexibility to the grid in general. So crypto is an example of that, that flexible computing. You can pause a crypto process when those machines wake back up, they just start again for that search of that special number. Cause it is a, it is, it is a essentially a search algorithm it's performing. So it's a hash that it's doing to try to search for the number that fits the mold of the, the pr- that the protocol has defined to protect that sheet. And so when you place those on the system at scale and in the way that we do it in this permanent fashion, you've now essentially retroactively added grid infrastructure that gives the grid the flexibility it so desperately needs to transition to green energy.
0: hmm so it's very, you know, it's as you say. There's there's a there's this sense of a, a marriage made in heaven. Where, you know, obviously crypto has its sort of, you know, it's not necessarily working for world good, but certainly, yeah. obviously, taking you know all these hugely power consuming data centers and putting them, I can never remember whether it's behind the grid or in front of the grid. Or sorry, the, the meter mm-hmm. next to locating them with renewables. Right. So I've got two questions. Firstly, where are we at today in terms of Adoption. I mean, is this a widely recognized solution, or are you and your company pioneers in this? Not only in this sort of thinking.
1: Yeah. So the crypto mining industry is now a multi-billion-dollar industry. It's gone from being, you know, a small group of programmers doing this on their computers—the the, the, the sort of classic nerd propeller head picture you could have in your mind—to very large publicly traded. Enterprises building these facilities all over the country. Now, some of these companies are just building it for the economics of the mining process, generating the Bitcoin asset, keeping it on their balance sheet, and allowing investors to get exposure to Bitcoin mining, much like you might get exposure to gold by investing in a gold miner, right? That's the purpose of their companies. Then there are companies like ours that are focused really on solving this renewable energy penetration problem and essentially starting with crypto and then advancing from there to other markets and bringing flexible compute to these different locations around the country and around the world that have this challenge. And that second category is a newer space. It's really sort of hit it's it's heyday if you will the last couple of years people have been sort of through conversations like this been enlightened around this this idea you know we talk to big power plant owners all the time and they says and i say do you have this problem and we describe the pain that they suffer every day and they say yes of course we do just like everybody else but ours is very acute you know and we say have you ever considered this as a solution and they says wow i never thought about that but that's brilliant <laughs> and that exists? I didn't know that. Is that what you do? And it gets into this very, very fast conversation that goes into all sorts of really deep technical questions that you know these big enterprises are going to have. But it's now to the point where slowly but surely we get into conversations where they're no longer asking those questions anymore. It's clear to them that this is the way to go. And now they're trying to decide whether they should go with us or someone else. or You know what I mean? It's, it's very fascinating to see in just a short period of time how quickly this is taking hold, the sheer number of projects that have evolved or grown in the space. And so it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the next few years around the world. We have projects in the US. We have projects in, in our pipeline in Europe. And uh, we're starting to see some uh, come out in asia because everyone is is starting to deal with this problem utilities governments are trying to understand what are we going to do when we try to convert our grid completely to green electrons <laughs> with this wasted energy problem yeah it's, uh, it's exciting actually to be an entrepreneur right now
0: yes and, and i wanted to talk about that because okay this is you know it, 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 I, and you know even at my sort of lay, layman's level you know understand how it is you know, is going to be a force multiplier for the renewables industry, it supports financing of those power generation projects, etc. Does this provide any kind of solution for, say, the developing world, where I know you spent some time as an entrepreneur, where, you know, you don't have these grid systems, you, you have entirely different setup? I mean, is, is computing essentially agnostic to where it's based? Can you just, sort of, I mean, from a global perspective, is this still a workable solution to help accelerate the energy transition?
1: It is. It. Uh, we started our life in Africa, Northern Africa. We started our life as a developer. How do we build green energy to help Morocco transition from being a net importer of energy? So they... They didn't produce enough energy themselves to support their growing economy. So they had to import some of it. A lot of their energy generation was fossil fuel-based or thermal plants, et cetera. And they decided about five years ago plus to transition their infrastructure and their energy to introduce more energy security in the, in the country. And that meant essentially exploiting their vast resources in solar, hydro, and wind. And we had a wind project there as the grid started to expand to the southern part of the country to support this whole initiative. And that wind farm was huge, twice the size of Manhattan Island, You know, wind started at 40 miles an hour, huge potential for energy generation, 900 megawatts. But it had one problem. It was stranded. <laughs> there was no grid there to send the power to and through. And we came up with this concept where we would vertically integrate the power plant with a computing facility that would be the initial monetization, if you will, of the power plant, so the power plant gets built. And then you can integrate the facility into the grid when the grid arrived. In the process of maturing the project and getting it ready for construction, the grid actually did make its way across the site. And we realized in our architectural design, simulation, and testing that the computing actually became not so much the primary off taker anymore because we would be able to sell power to the network, but we wouldn't be able to sell all of our power. So the computing was really that demand response or flexibility that the grid would need for a young emerging market where they need to build out infrastructure it's hard to attract capital to build it out but they need to build out energy in order to grow their their economies people don't generally realize how important energy is to the expansion and growth of nations you know if you look at the largest nations in the world that's where the power is if you go to africa you'll see lots of people without power <laughs> billions actually of you know energy poverty on the continent, but not resource poverty. Some of these countries have the best solar, the best wind, better actually than some countries here and in the west, and um they're unable to monetize them because there isn't that sort of security to bring investment in, support an economy. What economy? well, we need the power to grow our economy. <laughs> well, wait, call me when you do, <laughs> you know. And there's a chicken and egg there. But what if you can bring in a solution where you build a solar plant or a wind plant and you integrate this computing solution, monetize the power until there's infrastructure sufficient to take that power and move it to the growing population and in- industry centers. So let's say you, do meg- you build a 100 megawatt facility, but the economy only needs 30 of that. You know, So 70 can be used by the data center, and then as the economy grows, you can start to shrink the amount that the data center uses, send more power to the economy, and when the economy grows more and it needs more power, you can do the same thing. Uh, suddenly, you might have a repeatable solution for unlocking the potential of countries all over the world that are constrained in their growth because they don't have sufficient sustainable energy
0: yeah no it, it's it's very impactful it does trigger one small question before we wrap up do you see you talked about vertical integration there is there a scenario where this this powerful marriage as you speak to we do, we start seeing large web services companies you know the obvious ones start to actually just own their own, you know, renewables generation, and sort of, you know, essentially, potentially start becoming almost utilities of the future as they build out this generation capability for their own purposes, and then are exporting their excess power production?
1: The answer is yes, there's there's multiple ways that this could take shape. One way is that all power plants, you know, from now and into the future, are combined with a combination of different technologies, right? They might it might be a battery, this kind of flexible computing solution, and you know advanced trans transmission technologies, another sort of smart grid capabilities. The other is that the load itself becomes smarter and combines the generation right locally, right? You take the other way, like the, the data center builds its own power plant and injects it in, and so forth. As long as the data center itself is a flexible design, much like we've been talking about here, it works. There's a professor at the University of Chicago called Andrew Chen who studied this. He, uh, so Andrew was head of research for Intel before he saw, you know, what was happening with computing and the sort of end of Moore's law or the, 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 the plateauing of it. He went back to the university to start to stu- study all of these different phenomenons and he was, in, he was approached by the head of Invenergy and he saw him at a conference talking about this very challenging problem around getting all of his renewable energy onto the grid, big renewable energy leader in the space, alumnus of University of Chicago. That intrigued Professor Chen and he decided to go study this a little closer. And he spent time with a lot of the grid operators and collected data from them and used some, some computing facilities from one of the national labs. And he simulated the grid in two ways. One is he added more of the big name data centers that we all know to the grid simulation. But for each one of them, he added renewable energy power plants in the back of, of the data center there. And what he found is that the more he added that, the worse the problem got. The wasted energy problem, and part of it is the fact that that load need is fairly fixed right so if the data center still needs power, but the power plant behind there is not the wind isn't blowing and there isn't f- sufficient power it's got to get it from someplace right and so you 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 essentially sort of subsidize you know these legacy systems or fuels if you will to support it but whereas if you took the the grid and you added more intermittent facilities, but then you strategically place flexible load at or near the the power plants, the grid was able to absorb more and more renewables, not less. And that was the aha for him, that this whole concept of, he calls it dispatchable load or dispatchable data centers are key to completely transforming and therefore accelerating the penetration or integration of renewable power. And that insight, which we didn't realize he was doing in parallel to us also experiencing it ourselves firsthand and on the African continent, is the foundational insight that drives our business and I believe will reshape the way we look at architecting the grid of the future. Mm.
0: Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. And, you know, lots of our listeners are in and around the power industry, all of them are in the, the commodities sector. Um, I'd love to, you know, can you just share where people can find you, how they can contact you and and a little bit about, you know, Saluna. I know you're you know, publicly listed on the NASDAQ, etc.
1: Absolutely. Well, Paul, folks can find us on our website, uh, salunacomputing.com. Uh, there, they're fine, all sorts of information about the insights I've shared here, some very helpful research and we have this thing called a curtailment assessment that we use to analyze uh, power plants that are having these these wasted energy challenges and we design a solution for that we're on all the social platforms we can uh, you can find us on linkedin on our saluna page on twitter we're at saluna holdings and we have our own podcast as well that we hope listeners uh, spend time listening to to learn more about us. But it's just been a a pleasure talking to you today as well, Paul. Very fascinating and great questions.
0: Thank you. I should just note that we've got a a mutual connection coming on in a a week or two after this airs, whereas this is talking, I guess, about a real opportunity to, to support renewables in the existing infrastructure. We've got Bill nusi coming on to talk about distributed generation and, and what that might look like. So I'm excited for that as well. And uh, Indeed, yes, I would- yeah,
1: Bill is a, Bill, I'm a fan of Bill's and he's, he's, he's great. He, distributed generation is another fascinating way that the grid will evolve over time.
0: Yeah. And I will put links to you and your podcast, which I've really enjoyed listening to in the, in the show notes as well. So, right. John, thanks very much for your time.
1: Pleasure, Paul. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website, At www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.